to Breaking Down Bits, a conversation about great comedy bits with the comedians who wrote and performed them. Hey, Breaking Down Bits. I'm Brian Gendron. Hey, I'm Drew Jordan, and we are pumped about this episode. We're having a lot of fun. Uh, episode three. This is it's really happening. This is this has been great. <laughs> yes. Off a, a great episode with Joel Byers. Probably a good time to get into callbacks, things that we learned from Joel. How about you? What'd you get? Uh, I think for me, the callback for the Joel Byers episode was just a reminder that although you may be on stage solo and maybe a lot of comedy is on your own, it's not wrong or a bad idea to work with other comics and and um, kind of work out jokes, accept people's you know tags when they give them to you and just be collaborative in the background even though you want to own at the end of the day obviously your material and your point of view and all that stuff um be open to you know collaboration in the background i think that was a the cool takeaway absolutely yeah and we, that's why we call it community i think joel's done a better job than than anybody in creating this digital online community for comics uh, I, I myself participated in three yes three through daily right 10 clubs <laughs> and the, i'm not gonna lie the first one i was stumped i didn't come up it was the right 24 hour for me i couldn't come up with anything for 24 hours for the word water uh yesterday much better uh so yeah. that, that's what it is it's about working those calisthenics writing every day and having that accountability so if you have not checked out hot breath and the right 10 club go check it out great place to get it uh, so, and then of course, go back and listen to the podcast. Uh, it was our last episode. Subscribe, like, share, Apple, Google, YouTube. We made it easy for you, for you to go out and find us. So get out and get it. And it's evergreen content, guys. It's all about comedy, trying to make you better comedians as we all learn to get together. So Absolutely. Drew, uh, like you said, you're excited about today. Yeah, this was this was kind of an interesting um, connection. I would say it all started with me in a Google search, and maybe you've done this search as well. It's how to write jokes. Click, ha, and you course. just hope to find something good out on the internet. And we all know that. Um, I hope I'm not being uh, too blunt here, but like nine times out of ten, the stuff you find is not really all that helpful. Um, I found something called the joke writing cheat sheet, uh, a free uh, resource provided by Mr. Scott Dickers. And that, that led me down the rabbit trail of learning more about him, reading his books, um, connecting with him on social. Uh, he has been an incredible encourager. Um, even when I've, he's liked so many of my posts, commented on things, encouraged me to keep writing and doing other things. And we didn't even know each other. So I know he is passionate about helping people uh, write great comedy. He's passionate about writing it himself. I'm so pumped. Let's get into uh, this conversation with Scott Dickers on Breaking Down Bits. Scott Dickers is an accomplished comedy writer, speaker, and entrepreneur. He was the co-founding editor and longtime editor-in-chief of The Onion. He won a Peabody Award for his Onion News Network web series. He's authored several New York Times best-selling books and inspired writers and entrepreneurs alike through his book series, How to Write Funny, and his comedy business school. Bring him in, the man that we came here to hear from, Mr. Scott Dickers. Hey guys, how are you? It's I'm doing great. Great to be here. Thanks so much for coming on this podcast. It's definitely, um, you know, this is a new podcast from two newer comedians. Uh, you didn't have to say yes. We really appreciate you stepping in here to share some of your wisdom today. Uh, super excited. As I kind of mentioned, um, you know, my my first interaction with you was through this. I, I'm a nerd enough that I printed it out. And I, I love this resource. And this is one of the big things we'll be chatting about today. Great. Um, the 11 funny fil filters. And just want to say thanks for um, what you bring to this, to this comedy community. I think you bring something really special. Like I said, a lot of people out here trying to share advice. But I think your advice rang very true to me. Very helpful to me in my writing. And uh, even through your book, Outrageous Marketing, you know, some of the personal stories that you share kind of behind the scenes of, 
of the you know the progress and the creation of the onion very insightful and very helpful in a just in a in a personal like internal way i go ah i'm not such a weirdo other people are think like me too and and and, and love the things that i love so thanks for being so transparent in all the ways you are very welcome and thanks for saying all that and you had me right like i'm really passionate about comedy i'm really passionate about trying to make it better and the thing that inspires me most in this whole world is bad comedy like anytime i see comedy being done poorly i just want to help i just want to say hey could you just you know tweak it this way or do this or keep working you know keep going keep working on so um yeah you guys are doing amazing you guys are doing great and i'm delighted to be on your show so is that why you you were commenting on all my posts because no. you're inspired <laughs> no you're doing good you're, you're doing really good oh gosh no thank you so much for coming on um um, but Brian, maybe we should just hop right into these, these opening questions that we typically open with so we can get, uh, get things cracking. Yeah, let's go. So, so our, our first question is right off the top. We keep it very open-ended quite simply, Scott, how does Scott Dickers write comedy? Yeah. So the way I write, I'll start with process. So I, my process isn't something I can turn on. Like it, there's a preliminary investment that has to be made. So I have to have a good schedule. I have to free up my time. I can't be too busy with a bunch of crap. So I have to delegate things that aren't things that I should be focusing on so that I have time to sit down and actually work. Because a lot of times people will say, well, I don't have time to you know write jokes every day or whatever. And you just have to make that time. So once I make that time, the way I use that time is to start I just start writing. So like the morning pages exercise is a very important exercise for me whenever I need to write. And for a lot of my career, I haven't really had to produce a lot of writing. I was an editor mostly. So I would look at other people's writing and I would improve it. But whenever I would be called upon to like write a uh, TV pilot or I had to write a story or something like that, doing the morning pages exercise for a few days would rev me up and it would get the wheels going and, and comedy would just pour out of me. And so the way I write it then is I just pour out a, a rough draft as fast as I can of whatever it is I'm trying to write. If it's a list of jokes, I'll just write 10, 20 jokes fast as I can without even thinking about it. And I'll try to do that every day. So after a week, I've got like, you know, 140 jokes. I go through and I find the best 10 or 20 and I tweak them or whatever. And then I've got a pretty decent list of 20 jokes. If it's a piece, then I let it sit and I go back and read it later and fix it you know, see what I can do to, to make it better. I'm not one of those people that's gonna pour over a, a first draft or stare at a blank piece of paper for two hours without typing anything or typing a sentence and then deleting it. I'm gonna pour out a first, I'm gonna get that sucker written because mm. that first step of just getting it on the page, no matter how crappy it is, is really important. And just embracing that it's gonna be crap and knowing that the good part comes later when you're able to sift through all the crap and find things that you can work with and uh, finesse or whatever. So after I finesse, you know, I, I show it to people. I make sure it, in comedy, it's, this is not art. This is entertainment. Other people have to like it. So I get feedback from other people and I balance that against my own internal judgment. And then I put it out. It's basically how I do it. That's a really interesting distinction, art and entertainment. Because I think some people would say that stand-up comedy is art and if you don't get it then it's kind of like you're it's your bad well there's performance art have you ever have you ever seen performance art like that's um albert brooks calls that stand-up comedy without the jokes okay sure <laughs> and that's art you know that's somebody expressing themselves and god bless them you know i'm just not interested in that yeah that's, you know, a, that's a good distinction yeah and uh, one of the things you mentioned is is writing, uh, and, and, it, and it resonates to me, with me because it was in your book. It was big. Uh, quantity to get to quality was, was something that 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 stuck sticks with me. And you have to have the discipline, like you said, to to do it every day to get through the crap to find that gold, and then continue to refine and process that gold. Absolutely, it's <laughs> yep, that's how it works. So, so that's, that's awesome. perfect. One thing I wanted to ask, since. Um, you are known for multiple, I guess, comedy in multiple mediums. Um, you are a cartoonist. You obviously 
uh, well known for your work at the onion you've also done stand up you've you've done i mean pretty much every style of comedy that can be done you've you've spent some time there so nowadays um maybe you can just help help me figure this out as a comedian we don't just perform on stage anymore because of social media we're kind of um looking for ways to connect on twitter through text connect on maybe instagram facebook through images sometimes you find that a joke that kills on twitter doesn't work on stage or how do you, how do you see the difference in or do you have you kind of cracked why some jokes work visually versus verbally is that something that you've ever wrestled with actually i'm with you like sometimes you just don't know what's going to work in one medium versus another medium that's why you always have to try out your jokes and workshop them and get feedback on them and, and test them in front of audiences if you're going to do that but this is why i always start with people like a lot of people come to me and they'll take my classes or whatever and they'll learn comedy from square one like they don't know anything i mm -hmm. always start them with writing with writing jokes in prose because in my opinion, that's the absolute hardest way to make something funny. Mm. Because when you go out and you perform it, you've got all sorts of other tools you can use that you don't have in writing. You can adjust the timing, you can adjust your attitude, your delivery, you know, how you look, the, you know, how funny is your voice? How funny do you look? There's so many things. You're connecting, you're bonding with them. You're like right next to them on a stage that makes people wanna laugh more. But when it's just like symbols on a page, like that is really tough. So if you can crack that, once you get on stage, it's going to be easy. There, there's going to be some jokes that aren't going to work, but you at least have a baseline. You have a foundation where you kind of know the craft, you know? So to me, that's the difference um, between the two, as far as what makes one work and, and what makes one not work. Yeah, that's anybody's guess. Like you, you kind of have to put it out there and see what, what people will respond to. Yeah, it sounds kind of similar to what you hear, what I've heard hearsay, what Chris Rock does when he's working new material. They say that he'll go out and just read his new jokes with no verbal affect at all. And he'll just very boringly kind of deliver the jokes to see if they get a reaction because he doesn't want, he, he knows how strong his performance aspect is. So that's only to... that's going to be the icing on the cake once he does it. That's how we do it at The Onion for 30 years. We've been reading the headlines in a meeting in the most flat, monotone voice, the most boring voice, because we know that once it's on the front page and nice typesetting with a big, funny picture and everything else, it's going to be funnier. So we want to make sure it kills when it's read by the most boring person in the room in a monotone. So, yeah, yeah. we do the exact same thing. Interesting. You, the uh, the Peabody Award that, that you all won for the work you did with the Onion Network, wasn't that part of the, the, the chemistry that made that so great? Was the, the person that you hired to report and had that dry monotone delivery? We had a lot of different news anchors. Uh, a couple of them were like real news anchors because you need that authenticity, you know. Mm -hmm. right. um, but we had uh, uh, this one guy, Peak was his name, just beautiful, just like I think he was just an actor. He wasn't a newscaster, but he looked like one. He got it. Like, do you ever see newscasters in movies when they'll cast an actor to play a newscaster? And it's always wrong. It always feels like they're just acting like a newscaster. You need a real newscaster. And this guy got it. And we did this thing with The Onion for many years called The Onion Radio News. And we hired this guy. He was a once-in-a-lifetime find. He had done AM radio news for old people radio stations. So he had the most square... You know, this is the news at the top of the hour. <laughs> it was fantastic. But in his in his um, side hustle, he was a, a brilliant cartoonist and humorist and humor writer. So he totally got all the jokes. And we did these onion news bits for probably two decades and syndicated them to, you know, news stations all around. Howard Stern used to play them. They were so funny because he would read them in that dry voice. And it was really fun just to try to get through the recording to see if you could bust him up, you know, cause some of them were just so absurd, <laughs> but those things are around. I'm sure you could find some of those. Those are, I, I love those things. Awesome. You, you just did something back there that we've, we've left off of all of your biographical stuff we put out there. You're, you're a pretty accomplished uh, voice actor. I've done that and, as well. Yeah. Uh, and, and if, 
Yeah, and if I remember, uh, some of that started back when when you were uh, before before you didn't graduate high school. Uh, the uh, prank calls and, and making taste uh, with your friends. Sure Drew, we should have lined up. We should have lined up a prank call today. That's true. <laughs> that would have been. When's the last time you made a prank call? Boy, I think since I was a kid. Uh, yeah. Since I was a kid, I haven't done it. Um, it is, it is really fun. Um, that, you know, those like jerky boys things got really popular for a while. I don't know. It sort of felt like, um, it's such a, it's a kid thing. It's such a kid thing to do, you know, like what adult is going around doing that? Um, Frank Yankers, that's who. Yeah. Frank Yankers, yeah, so they yeah. made a whole show about it. Um, yeah, that was, those are fun times. Oh yeah, I definitely did that. Not to the, not to the, uh, the talent level that Scott did though. I, I heard one where you come on the radio um, as Ronald Reagan and this was back when he was president. That's how old I am. And yeah, <laughs> yeah I, di I, I did an impression it. of him and they put me on the air and I took questions from listeners and uh, they really thought I was the president. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, you uh, clearly a strong vocal <laughs> talent because uh, I was like expecting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's because you were like 19, 20, something like that when you were doing yeah. this. And I was yeah. not expecting it to be so spot on. I was like, <laughs> wow, I wish I could do voice. Oh, did like you hear that. it? I did, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, because it's I clipped it in the audiobook. Yes, right. it's it's in the right, audiobook, right. yeah. I, I, don't, I don't read words, I listen to books. No, it's a bit, that's the way to do it. Yeah. That's <laughs> funny. Thanks for including that. It really brought that story sure. home. Yeah. I didn't get permission from any of those people, those radio DJs. <laughs> Screw fine. them. Yeah, they don't they'll never hear it. They don't care. Audible <laughs> doesn't care. Yeah. Hey, the one thing we really want to get into, and the thing that maybe made the biggest impact on me and just kind of like I would say it might be one of the most powerful, you know, comedy writing tools that I've come across to help me write has been this 11 funny filters. Talk to us a little bit about um, how you came up with that because it just, it just seems to work so well. It gives me so many options when I'm writing. Once I have a good starting place, man, what a cool tool. What, what, what were the beginnings of that? Yeah, I appreciate you saying that. So there's a few comedy teachers out there who all have their methods and, I think they're all wonderful and valid. And I think everybody should, who wants to write jokes should partake of all of them to see what fits. The, the reason I came up with mine the way I did is because I, I wanted something that was really broad and could encompass pretty much any kind of humor that you wanted to write. It wasn't limited to late night jokes. It wasn't limited to stand up jokes. It wasn't limited to any category of humor, like humor for kids or humor for adults or satire or whatever it was it encompassed everything mm. and the way i came up with it was after editing the onion for on and off for like 20 years and doing all of the other comedy that i had done the radio comedy the cartooning um the movies that i made the scripts i'd written everything books i felt like i knew how to do it i felt like i really knew the craft and there were certain terms that we would use at the onion in the meetings talking about certain types of humor. We talk about the misplaced focus in a joke. Uh, we talk about the wordplay, the reference, this sort of stuff. And so I just, you know, over time slowly compiled these tools, these funny filters, I, I call them. I had to name them because they didn't really, we didn't have a name for them. But I realized the way you come up with a joke is you come up with an idea that you want to communicate, whatever your subtext is. Usually it's just some opinion about your life or life in general. I hate soup, you know, that's your opinion. You make that into a joke by filtering it through one or more of these 11 different filters. And I determined that there were no others. This is it. There's no other way to professionally craft humor other than these 11 different ways. And you can mix and match them so you can come up with an infinite number of combinations to make, you know, totally original jokes. So while it seems like a formula, and it is kind of a formula, you saw that joke cheat sheet, uh, <laughs> it's by no means formulaic because right. it, it, oh, it, it makes you more creative because it allows you to draw humor from elements that you might not have considered. Like you might have a pretty good joke and then it's like, oh, I could add a dash of shock to this. You know, um, all right, you know, if I just add a reference to the human butt, this, would be, this joke would be a lot funnier, you know, because that happens where you have a joke that's pretty good, but you know, it just needs a little oomph, you know? Yeah. So it, I decided to write a book when I left the onion 
where I just spelled it all out. Just like, okay, no more humor. I'm just gonna give out the recipe and make it very clear, very plain. And here's how you do it. And I didn't know what would happen. I didn't know what to expect from that book. I self-published it on Amazon with zero fanfare, zero marketing, and it just kept selling and it kept selling more and more and more. And it's a real perennial. And, you know, I get emails from people every day saying, oh my God, it helped me so much to write jokes. And um, cause I guess nobody else had really thought it through that deeply and really spelled it out that clearly. So I just got lucky that I was the first to do it. And I kind of built this whole uh, teaching program around the book because before I left The Onion, we had started this partnership with the Second City Training Center in Chicago where I was teaching courses where I'd use some of the same lingo and some of these same ideas. So the book kind of became the basis of that curriculum. And then I left there and now I'm teaching on my own online. But... um, you know, that's kind of like a little side business that I run where I, I teach comedy and sell these books. So. Yeah. Well, it's, it's an amazing book and I, I agree. Well, that, totally helpful. That's a good transition. We're going to actually look at some of the uh, onion headlines that you've uh, edited or created over the years, uh, looking at those 11 funny filters. So uh, if you can humor us, uh, the first of the funny filters is irony. So share a little bit about irony and then we'll share the the headline and we'll move through these. Yeah. Irony is real simple. It's just take the opposite of your literal meaning and that becomes a joke. So if your literal meaning, go back to my stupid example, I hate soup. It's I love soup. Like, so then that would turn into an article about how much, how soup is so awesome. Like soup is the greatest food ever. And here's why just like, that's your joke. And you just, you run with it and you buy into it. You play it straight. And that's how irony works. Buy into it and play it straight are two keys you hit on. Let's look at this. uh, Let's look at this article here alcoholic father disappointed in pothead son (laughs) so yeah people who know irony know that that is ironic because they are the same they both are addicted to something but the father is ironically disappointed in his son so as i mentioned before these funny filters work really well when they're layered so irony is is a big one here but there's also reference because we've all seen that situation. Like that's kind of a stereotypical father-son relationship where the father is this blue collar drunk and his son is a layabout pot smoker that the dad thinks is lazy and should get off the pot, you know? So those, there are two funny filters working there and a few others too. Like any story in the onion uses uh, the parody filter also because it's a parody of a newspaper article. So that's actually one of the great things about The Onion is that when you write any story in The Onion, it automatically has two, sometimes three funny filters going for it before you've written word one. It has parody, it has character, because The Onion is a character. It's a classic comic archetype, the braggart captain fool, the the bumbling authority is what I call it, Mm -hmm. which is an authority, a serious newspaper that spouts nonsense. So everything is just elevated. Everything in there, it just gets funnier. You know, and, and if you apply that to stand up, it's really important that you establish your voice and your identity, whether it's working off an archetype, like you just mentioned, the bumbling authority, uh, or for me, it's, it's the, the, the dad kind of, you know, the smart ass dad and husband, yeah, absolutely. Yep. then, then everything through that lens can become funnier using these filters. Absolutely. Yeah. It's just another, I, I think of it as like, um, another piston that you're firing for, to make the comedy funnier. Yeah. So you hit on one of, you hit on our next example, or the next filter reference and, and uh, actually I've got character. Char- character. Okay. Yes. Character. So tell us, tell us a little bit more about character. You mentioned an archetype. Maybe we can get into that a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. The way character works is really simple. You just have to come up with a made up character. That's not yourself. That is either a, an established character archetype who people have historically loved and there are many. I'm actually working on a book right now called How to Write Funny Characters, which lists them all and how to use them. Um, Cause I saw a book like this that was called The Eight Characters of Comedy at, because there's so many characters that reoccur on sitcoms, but I'm, I've got at least 30 cause I see these characters all the time and I wanted to just sort of explain how to write them and how they work and why they're funny and all that. But so you invent a character 
and then you tell your joke through that character. And when you establish that character's traits, which you do when you make them an archetype, or if they're not an archetype, if they just, just give them a couple of traits, then when you show them acting on those traits, that's funny. People like seeing a character act the way they're supposed to. And you've, you've already talked about irony and character. Combining those two gives you character irony, which is when a character acts in exactly the opposite way that you expect, which is very funny for the audience, but you have to first establish the character. So like in The Wizard of Oz, when the scarecrow gets his brain, see, he's been dumb the whole movie. And when he gets his brain, he rattles off that, that mathematical equation. That's funny because it's character irony. This is this can be a tough one for me. I think sometimes when I'm when I'm going through the funny filters and I have like a little subtext idea in my head, sometimes it's hard to inject character in there. It's for me, it's so much easier to notice it and and appreciate it. Sometimes writing it is tough for me. That's that's a that's a tough one for me to sometimes generate. Yeah, for a stand-up, I think Brian's right that it's like, what's your comic persona? Know who you are as a character and make sure all your jokes make sense coming from you. Like Rodney Dangerfield was the master of that. He knew who his character was. He was the guy who didn't get any respect. So every single one of his jokes was about yeah. a guy not getting any respect. So you're meant to laugh at his misfortune. And that's, that's his whole shtick and it works beautifully. When you, know, when you, when you do introduce other, other uh, characters in your standup, I, I love that you said limit it to a few. And I think in the book you said, one to three characters traits that make yeah. funny yeah. yeah because if you go overboard on that then you lose them they, they're they're that's they're too many. Uh, yeah exactly <laughs> yeah comedic characters aren't complicated like dramatic characters you don't want to know their whole backstory they're just cardboard cutouts like think of will ferrell in any movie he's a man <laughs> he's a man child or he's a bumbling authority and that's about it you know like simple archetypes um a, a great one that i always think of is indiana jones because those movies are comedies. They're just very simple, two-dimensional movies. You know, they're not serious dramas. They're not Sophie's Choice. And his character traits are, he has two archetypes. He's a fighter, meaning he solves his problems with his fists. Number two, he's a know-it-all. So he's like a professor that knows everything. And number three, he hates snakes. That's it. <laughs> That's it. He has no more traits. I love Pretty the simple. way that you note... Um the way that really connected with me on characters was the Looney Tunes characters are totally. all archetypes. Totally, and yeah. once that clicked in my brain, I was like, ah, this is so, and it's like, you, you start to have way more respect for these people who came up with these Looney Tunes. Cause they're so yeah. just based on basic. I forget the archetypes that you mentioned in the, uh, the art, the, is it? It's a Canadian del art. It's the Italian Renaissance theater Italian. Yeah. where a lot of these um, Western literature character archetypes originally came from but they would have been discovered anyway and i i would guess that the people in um the warner brothers studio came up with them just by horse sense like they weren't studying the commedia dell'arte they would try out a character and they would see how the audience reacted to their short and they'd be like oh they like that one let's bring them back so it was like a natural attrition of the characters that people love, which is exactly what that Renaissance theater was. You know, things like the bumbling authority or the trickster or the dummy or the Lothario, like Pe Pepe Le Pew. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, the, it's a, it's a wonderful uh, stable of characters that every comedian should, should know and study. Love it. Let's take a quick look at uh, an onion article that paints the example philandering string theorist can explain everything. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so good. so what, what the character is a philandering string theorist. So we know he has two traits. He's a string theorist and he is a philanderer. So what does the joke do? It shows him acting on both of those traits at the same time. He philandered and he got caught and he can explain everything because String theorists. So there's a, you know, a double entendre in there as well, which is a type of wordplay. Um, but that's it. That's a very simple, basic character joke that just shows it establishes a simple character and it shows him acting on his traits. That's it. In the, so the, in the length of a headline, Drew. That's beautiful. All right. Yeah. Gosh. Number number three. And we're going to take you back for with this example all the way back to your to the in, in print days. 
uh, and this isn't for kids, but we're going to talk about shock and to let's shock them right off the top with our example. This is holy shit. Man walks on the fucking moon. <laughs> holy living shit. This is, uh, yeah. this is a lot of fun. <laughs> that was a lot of fun. Obviously the onion was not in print in 1969. That's right. That's from a book. <laughs> From a book that we did in the late 90s called Our Dumb Century, where we did fake onion headlines throughout the entire 20th century. Great book. And yeah, so shock is the judicious use of sex or swearing or violence or anything shocking in mixed company uh, almost always gets a laugh. And it's a little bit of a cheap laugh. It's a little bit of an easy laugh, especially with the demographic of young boys. They really enjoy that particular funny filter. So the, the kind of watch word of shock is to use it in moderation. Mm. You know, a lot of comedians work clean. A lot of other comedians know that the F-bomb can be a crutch. And if they start using it every other word, it's like loses its meaning. So something like that, Onion Headline, the shock is in service of the deeper subtext. So the subtext that we were trying to communicate there was wasn't it just fucking amazing that man walked on the moon? And there's a little bit of irony there too, because at the time, yes, the newspaper headlines were big, but Neil Armstrong's words on the moon and all the newscasters talking about it were very calm. And they were very like, the man has taken his first steps on the moon and all this stuff. And, um, <laughs> and, we thought, we thought, you know what, that's just not appropriate to the, the bigness of this event. It needed us. And in journalism, too, it's another like inside journalism joke. There's a, there's a type of headline in newspaper journalism called the holy shit headline. And so we decided, well, if any story deserves the holy shit headline, it's that one. So just run the holy shit in the biggest possible type and uh, you're, you're set. It feels like there's a lot of misuse of that holy shit headline these days. Oh, totally. Yeah. Like the, the, every story in the 24-hour news cycle is, <sighs> you, know, you know, William Barr testified. Come on. Who cares? You know? <laughs> yeah. Oh, well, man. good stuff. Let's move into the next example. This has a little bit of shock in it, too. I'm going to show this here on the screen. So the hyperbole is our next example. And if you can see that here. NRA calls for teachers to keep loaded gun pointed at class for entire school day. Yeah. Hyperbole. I love that. <laughs> that picture is what really drew me into this one. Yeah. So that's a, an interesting example because I don't think it's a, a, a great hyperbole joke because the, the best hyperbole jokes exaggerate to the point of impossibility. And this is actually possible, which I don't like about it. Um, the best hyperboles are are they defy the laws of physics yeah like uh go back to rodney dangerfield he said um my doctor tested my urine it had an olive in it so <laughs> um impossible and that's what makes it funny i think this is a fun one um to use to punch up a joke um, if you go yeah. back, sometimes I, when I go back and look at my jokes, I realize I can, I can turn up the contrast on this bit and it becomes wildly funnier. Yeah. And sometimes this is a great, I think a great technique for a tag, you know, you kind of just keep sure. pushing further and further and further until you get to maybe to that impossible level. I love this one for, as a, as a way to tune up an old joke that you already kind of like. Yeah. Uh, I was just telling Brian earlier, I just talked to Pat Noswald for my, um, podcast and we we're talking about hyperbole because I think he's really good at ramping up the hyperbole with every beat of a bit where it gets so yeah. absurd that um, by the end you almost wouldn't be getting those jokes if you hadn't gone along the ride because it's been so hyperbolized right. and that's hard writing hyperbole is one of the hardest types of jokes but when you do it well it's like it feels like a really solid professional comedy joke you know it's like unre it, it, it's um, unmistakable. Yeah. I'm going to move on to our, to the next filter, number five, which is wordplay, which is always a fun one. Let me go ahead and share an example from the onion. Frito-Lasia cuts off 
diplomatic relations with Snackistan. Yeah. <laughs> I'm getting better at reading these. Yeah. <laughs> so wordplay gives people a lot of trouble because they think, well, isn't that just puns? And like, they have a hard time working it, working it into their bits. And it doesn't seem very sophisticated because puns typically are, those are like bad jokes from elephant joke books and stuff like that. Yeah. But there are ways to do it and there are ways to do it well. And you were talking about Chris Rock earlier. I saw him do one on his recent special. It's really nice little wordplay dropped right in there. He was talking about how uh, God makes mistakes. And he was like, uh, you know, Mississippi, that's a mistake. He said, M-I-S-S-T-A-K-E. <laughs> um, just a nice little wordplay joke he dropped in. Like you can't dwell on wordplay too much, but you can drop it in here and there and people will appreciate kind of the mathematical puzzle aspect of a wordplay joke that story you showed there that's this type of story i think that was the first one we ever did where we just do an assault of the puns and we just try to put as many puns in a story as humanly possible i had a teacher one time uh, a comedy friend teacher guy suggest that maybe uh, or maybe maybe it was i read i read it somewhere it could have been you so i apologize if i'm, I'm quoting you to you but maybe a pun is maybe a joke without this. It's lacking the subtext. It's just, it's just the face value only. Yeah. I do say that. Okay. (laughs) Wordplay only works with subtext. Like you have to have good subtext and the subtext of that Frito-Lay article is that Americans don't care about what's happening in Asia or the Middle East. They only care about eating snacks. Um, right (laughs) which is it's so funny to take i think one of the things that makes the onion and your comedy so interesting is that you're willing to take a risk like that like that on its face if you know maybe people wouldn't have pushed to find the the gym in that thought like oh americans don't care about overseas they care about snacks that's a that's a very like interesting thing to like put your foot down and go okay how can i make this work (laughs) right right well sometimes you come up with a joke first and then you see the subtext in it and that's, that's true. I think that was the case with that one. It was just a on the list and nobody liked it but me. I thought like, oh, that could be really stupid and funny. Like comedy writers never want to do a stupid joke. They always want to do a smart joke. But I think yeah. sometimes you have to do a stupid joke um, because audiences love them. And especially if it has smart subtext, like why not? You know? Sure. I think I think that just like you said in the last one, Drew, that in, in stand up, uh, wordplay is great for tagging. It's it's really great if you can if you can keep the string of subtext going through a through fun wordplay it works really effective like Chris Rock did in, in your example. So, yeah. Perfect. Uh, let's move on to our next one. You were trying to get to this one earlier, and it is reference. Reference. So, yeah, yes, that's sir. a big one. So I, I found this one. Tip of area man's tongue refuses to relinquish Richard Krenya's name. <laughs> now, yeah. now maybe Richard. maybe an outdated outdated reference but yeah Richard Crenna he, he played Colonel Troutman in First Blood with Sylvester Stallone and ah. he was he was in um I think he was in the uh top secret movie with the Zucker brothers if I'm not mistaken amazing mm-hmm. actor okay. anyway so yeah that a reference is a little observation you know Jerry Seinfeld built his entire stand-up career on this George Carlin to a great extent as well, especially early, of just these little moments in life that the comedian recognizes and communicates to the audience. And the audience is like, oh, I've experienced that little thing. They love that reference and it makes them connect with the comedian. And so sometimes all you have to do is point it out. You just point out the, the little thing that you've noticed that no one else has noticed. That's all it takes. That is such a that I think that comedy blows. That's the kind of stuff that blows my mind from time to time when you when you like someone references something. You it's almost like when your phone you're like you swear your phone is listening to you, right? Like, because yeah. something comes up, you haven't said it to anyone, you've never had the conversation, then all of a sudden right. some comic comes out with the joke, and you're like, ah, and it's connective too. It's totally very connective. connective. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the beauty of that. I never know if I'm doing this in the right order. So forgive me if this is out of order, but is it it's where you take the subjective and make it something that is we all accept as subjective and make it objective or am I flipping that? Is that, is that backwards? Oh, I don't know that uh, reference. Well, either um, way. So, so take something like a, like a necktie and a necktie is, is very formal. 
because we all accept it to be formal, but it's kind of a silly piece of clothing if you if you look at it, right? And so- I Oh, I see, like a changing the perspective. Um, I feel like that's a way to come up with subtext. Like if your subtext yeah. could be like, isn't a bow tie a weird clothing item? Like that's perfect subtext to start um, coming up with jokes on, you know, to see mm. where you can go with that. So sticking a reference on top of that. Okay. Yeah, so that's, yeah, that's come up helpful. with some kind of reference about uh, the types of people that wear bow ties or under what circumstances would you ever wear one, you know, just starting to think of things like that. Yeah. Oh yeah. That's a fun, that's a fun thread to pull. Totally. Very teddy bear, teddy bear should have a bow tie. <laughs> this one's kind of fun guys. We're going to get into madcap. So oh, yeah. share. it's one of my favorites. So the, and I love this headline. Uh, Secretary of agriculture attends diplomatic meeting with foreign cabbage. And yeah. there's a pic picture of the cabbage. Yeah. <laughs> so ridiculous. If you grew up with, and I think probably you will reference this, but like Monty Python was growing up was just the perfect for this. This is, this is something I, as a young person, just love so much. Yeah, they were the kings of madcap. And the British have a reputation for doing madcap better than Americans. Like there's a few people in America that have done it really well, like the Three Stooges and... Um, they did it a lot on Gilligan's Island, um, Three's yeah. Company, and Jim Carrey is well known for, you know, it's just like being wacky and physical and silly and funny faces and silly props, silly pratfalls, things like that. Most American comedy is very restrained. Mm. And I don't know why that is, because for me, Madcap is often the garnish that really makes a joke a laugher. Just keep making it more silly, especially yeah. if it's in a bit or a short piece and you're escalating it to, to increase the madcap as you go. I was just watching this uh, animated cartoon, Simon's Cat. I'm sure you guys have seen that. It's like got 40 million views on YouTube. And it's a cat trying to wake up a guy's simple line drawing animation. And the cat like scratches him and he pat taps him on the head and he pulls his ear. So he's escalating the ways that he's trying to wake this guy up. And the final beat is the cat disappears behind the bed and shows up with a huge baseball bat and just whacks him on the head <laughs> and then immediately hides the bat and pretends like he's sleeping on the bed. Uh, great madcap joke. It's a great example of how you can escalate a bit to the point of madcap, you know, because obviously at that point we, we expect it to get more absurd and we, we accept that a cat can wield a baseball bat because we bought into the reality of at that point, you know, sounds, yeah. sounds like that might be uh, inspired a bit by Jim's journal with the, with the, the way you described the animation, uh, very simple animation, but uh, perhaps, perhaps. Yeah. But, um, but no, I think in, in standup, what we do is uh, we talk a, a lot with, um, with our Joel Byers, our last guest about act outs and, and right. adding, you, you right. said garnish, which is a nice way to put it. Once, you're, once you've gained the confidence that, that what you're saying is funny, that it's communicated clearly, now you can add a little more to it with, with act outs and madcap. Yeah. Now the act out to me is a way to inject character because now you're playing a character mm -hmm. in that scene, you know. Very good. I'm going to move on to one of everybody's favorites, which is parody. So the Onion article that we pulled was world death rate holding steady at 100%. Yeah. Um, I took some liberty because everything the Onion does is parody. So yeah. I just, I picked one of my favorite uh, Onion articles. Well, you did a good job because it's, there's a, a parody within a parody in this article. And that's a parody of a, uh, a survey or a, a statistical graph, you know, where all the bars say 100%. Um, but yeah, every story in The Onion is a parody of a newspaper article. And people have problems with that. They, they have an issue with, well, it's, it's a format, but it's also a funny filter. Like you can, The Onion, every story in The Onion is a parody of a newspaper article, but you can also parody things within articles. Like we've done so many articles that will be about, um, like rookie cop can't, or uh, I'm sorry, uh, aging cop uh, hates rookie partner and stuff like that, which is parodying uh, the standard buddy cop formula movie, you know. Uh, and you've done work for for Saturday Night Live, you know, there that that whole 
45 year plus uh, program has been all about parody and it's done it very well. Uh, yeah, they are always parodying movies, TV shows. Uh, they parody the news, obviously, on Weekend Update, stuff like that. So I'm going to move into our next funny filter. Uh, this one is analogy and actually one of my favorites to do on stage. Yeah, it's a good one. Uh, though hard to pull off. So let me share let me share with you an Onion article real quick. Al Gore places infant son in rocket to escape dying planet. That is one of my favorite onion stories ever. I didn't come up with it and I wasn't there when they printed it. I literally saw it on the street in a newspaper box and I was so delighted because I think it's a perfect analogy. Like it's, it's such a beautiful analogy that really matches up. So Al Gore is being analogized with Jor-El of the Superman uh, story. And there are so many parallels and that's what makes analogy work so well. When you find these two disparate things that you normally don't think of as being related and you find all these connection points and every different connection point you can find is a joke beat. And that story is filled with them. There's so many, it's really just uh, a wonderful piece. Everybody should look it up and read it. Yeah, and that uh, one of the other things I love about that is the illustration. Did y'all right. who, who illustrates that? Well, that would have been uh, Mike Lowe, Nick Gallo. That was the graphics team at the time. Uh, amazingly talented guys. Yeah, one of, one of the reasons I like analogies so much is just fun to to you get into that space where it's like, well, you have this this object or this subject that you're talking about, and then you just allow your brain to to word mapping and, and make connections. And uh, I've got a, a couple bits that I really like. Uh, one, for example, uh, I, I'm a runner, participate in a in a marathon, and uh, and and so once. Uh, as I unfold the joke, then it becomes how, how can I make this connection to the finish line and all the different things? So there's volunteers handing up bananas and granola bars. There's a tinfoil blanket. And then, and so that you're able to tag your, the, the joke based on that. And so totally. those are my favorite to write, but they're very challenging and difficult to, to really pull off on stage from a stand-up perspective. Yeah. There's uh, a, a great, great example of analogy in an episode of Seinfeld. Did you ever see the one where he um, decided to switch barbers? He went with a, a younger barber because he'd been going to the same barber forever. <laughs> and they decided to do that story as an analogy as if Jerry was having an affair. So the barber, um, he invited the younger barber to his house to give him his haircut so he wouldn't be working at the shop where the older barber was so he wouldn't see him. And then the older barber knocked on his door and he's like, oh my God, he's here, you have to hide. You know, so that's a trope of having an affair when you're in a relationship and they mapped it on top of barbers. And it worked beautifully because the whole thing in a relationship where you, you find a hair on the collar, you know, the barber was able to do that. Aha, you have a new barber or whatever. Yes, and that's right, I do. Okay, now, now you remember that episode. It. I do. Yeah, yeah so that's, that's a great example. I mean, those guys, Larry David, Jerry Seinfeld are masters of comedy writing. And that show uses all the funny filters uh, brilliantly. So it's a great, great show to look at. Yeah. And, and from a from a stand up perspective uh, or really from any comedy, I would imagine, is you have to set it up in the beginning and set it up strong to make sure that they all understand it. Yeah. Uh, and if it's written really well, they can enter at any point, but, but really you don't want to uh, mention the thing you want it to be understood. People uh, who do analogy wrong always um, try to be cagey about it. And they try to make the audience work too hard to figure out what two things they're comparing. And that's the mistake you want to, like you said, should be as easy as possible to get. One of the things has to be overt. You have to mention it. The other one, has to be secret. So in the Seinfeld example, the overt one was barbers. It was all about the barber and switching barbers and getting haircuts. They never mentioned having an affair. They never mentioned being unfaithful. Like they just used tropes from that scenario mapped on top of the barber. So in the Al Gore story, same thing. At no point in that article does it say, so you see Al Gore is like Jor-El and his son is like Superman. Like that would be like revealing your subtext. You never do that. 
you just point out the similarities. So in the article, they call him Gor-Al, which makes you think of Jor-El, you know, but you don't ever say Jor-El. Um, and they talk about the Council of Elders and like, you know, the, 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 the planet dying, everything, it matches so beautifully. Very good. I'm gonna move on to our next filter, which is, a, which is one that's very often used in stand-up misplaced focus, or we might call it a yes. misdirect, I would think. But, yeah, that's it's uh, typically misdirect, like Anthony Jeselnik is the king of that in stand-up. Absolutely. So the article um, reads, uh, secondhand smoke linked to secondhand coolness. Yeah, so the misplaced focus there is that secondhand smoke is dangerous, and we're ignoring that and focusing on something unimportant instead. <laughs> So that's how misplaced focus works. You think of something that's really important that people should really care about and you make them think of that thing by focusing on the wrong thing. Man, it's really I, that simple. I love that so much. I love when, to me, that's like, it, it just, it kind of catch, it's like almost a minor shock because there's something big going on in the scene. Almost like, you know, a family guy kind of uses this maybe a lot. Sure. There's something going on. And then they focus on the tiniest, most unimportant detail and just beat it to death until you're finally, you, you give in and you have right. to laugh. Right. Yeah. That's, um, they're good at the, um, the overkill joke that, that the, where you do a joke over and over and over. It's funny at first, then it gets unfunny and then it starts to get funny again. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm gonna I'm gonna move to the the very last comedy filter. I can't believe we've already gone through eleven. The last one is meta humor, and the example from the Onion is I just discovered this hilarious comic strip called Garfield. <laughs> yeah, so meta humor is a lot of fun. It's when you make fun of other humor, or you make fun of the idea of humor. You deconstruct humor in a very humorless way. Steve Martin was kind of the king of meta humor. He would make fun of his whole act by calling it hilarious comedy jokes, you know. <laughs> and um, a subset of meta humor is called anti humor, which is what Andy Kaufman used to do, where he'd get up on stage and do something totally unfunny, like eat ice cream, and um, the audience would get upset. And that's like a whole nother like experiment <laughs> in comedy. Yeah. Audiences. Doing anti-humor is always risky, yeah. but it can be it can be cultish. But yeah, meta humor is a lot of fun. My favorite, we talked about Monty Python earlier. My favorite, one of my favorite meta humor jokes comes from them. It's um, the the world's deadliest joke. Remember that sketch? <laughs> I'm not sure if I do. Uh, it's brilliant. It's such a great sketch. It's where a guy writes the funniest joke in the world, and it's so funny that anyone who reads it dies laughing. So he writes it and then he himself dies. Okay. Yeah. And then his wife comes in the room and she's mortified because he's died, but she picks up what he wrote and she starts laughing and she dies. And so it's this whole skit where the British government discovers the joke and they try to translate it into German so they can use it in the war. And they have soldiers <laughs> running through the battlefield reading this German version of the joke and Germans are dropping dead from it. It's just wonderful. Like those guys were oh. so good. <laughs> oh, that is that is absolutely <laughs> that is absolutely amazing. Oh man. Um I consider Monty Python to be like the Rosetta Stone of modern comedy. Oh yeah. I I couldn't imagine my childhood without it. Like it just possible. opened up a door yeah. to um uh, a silliness and putting a lot of effort into something that seemingly is kind of dumb. But the, yeah the effort they put into these dumb jokes makes them brilliant. And they were all so smart, like so well-educated, right? multiple, you know, languages and just mm -hmm. this insane Oxford and Cambridge education that they had. Yeah. Uh, and, and then to do like the silliest stuff. Mm -hmm. um, it was a wonderful combination of like smart and dumb. Yeah. I mean, I was, I was thinking about the coconuts, you know, even, even that is yeah. just the most smallest yeah. little touch that goes, and it came from, they couldn't afford horses. Yeah. Like they literally couldn't afford horses in the budget. So they just used coconuts. It's a great joke. 
and then they do they do have some meta humor about the coconuts a few moments. oh yeah they're filled they get with called meta humor. they get called out like you don't have you didn't ride here you banging two coconuts together right. <laughs> so that so that was the 11 funny filters uh do you want to share with us a little bit about uh where that comes from the, the book series the podcast and the, and the school just kind of put that out there so people know how to find more Sure. Thanks. Yeah. So the book that those are all explained in how to use them and how to work with them is called how to write funny. And that's on Amazon and there's an audiobook. And then there's two sequels, how to write funnier. The second book is all about how to expand those jokes into a longer piece or a bit. And then the third book, how to write funniest is how to use a comedy team to amplify the quality of your humor uh, exponentially. And then, so the website is howtowritefunny.com where I offer courses uh, where people can get hands-on help from me and stuff like that. Very oh good. yeah, and the podcast also called How to Write Funny. That's on the website, howtowritefunny.com. Also interviews with comedians, comedy writers, people behind the scenes, just people talking in the weeds about how the comedy business works and how, to, how they write jokes and a lot of inspiration from a lot of different um, people, some super famous, some super unknown but all with really interesting things to say. I would also encourage anyone to get out there and grab the book, Outrageous Marketing, because oh, you. if you have any interest in the backstory, I think of Scott, where you came from, and also obviously the backstory of The Onion, um, amazingly, uh, so, much, so much insights uh, in many different areas. And, and one of those books, I think that like leaves you pretty encouraged ready to do your own thing. And, and uh, so I just appreciate you putting that out as well. Yeah, thanks for saying so. Glad you liked it. So as we as we land this plane, Scott, there's one last thing that we like to do. It's yeah. a bit morbid. It's a bit morbid, so bear with us. Uh, the uh, we we call it last laugh. So you have a limited amount of space, which you're good at, uh, to put on your tombstone. What what would you like to have as your last laugh? So I got one for you. I um, I do like a short headline. Like some of the best onion headlines um, have been three, sometimes even two words. You know. And the Holy Grail is like the one word joke. And so I think I came up with a one word joke for my tombstone that would make anyone who looked at it laugh. Anybody walking through the cemetery who sees that is gonna laugh. And so why not? Like, that'd be great, right? So what my tombstone would say is simply fucked. <laughs> <laughs> like what, what teenager walking through the cemetery wouldn't just laugh out loud at that one <laughs> either they wouldn't get it it would be an unwitting laugh because it would be like ha, ha, that dude's name was fucked <laughs> or they would just think that it was really funny and clever so you get them you get them whether they were smart or dumb you should have, we should have known that that scott dickers would murder murder this well literally uh this uh this game right here appreciate that one <laughs> sure you win. Uh, yeah, I used to walk uh, my way. I used to have to go through a cemetery to get home from school. And you, you better believe me and my my young adolescent friends would be rolling rolling in the graveyard grass. <laughs> <Absolutely>. <laughs> Excellent. Well, hey, hey Scott, we, we really do appreciate you taking the time to join us today. Sure. Uh, my pleasure. Very, very sage advice and, and stuff that can help everybody uh, who's in comedy. So I hope so. Yeah, and also don't forget, uh, how can we find you on uh, social media? I'm at Scott Dickers on Twitter, and I'm It's Scott Dickers on Instagram, and my Facebook page, I think, also is It's Scott Dickers, um, because there's no other Scott Dickerses, but somebody somehow got Scott Dickers on uh. Facebook and Instagram. That's all right, that's all right, whatever. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I, and I also, also you can Google me, like that stuff comes up pretty easy. Oh, and my name is spelled D-I-K-K-E-R-S. Almost everybody mispronounces it or misspells it D-I-C-K. Mm. So. Well, thanks again for coming on. Like, it's an absolute thanks. dream to get to chat thanks. with you after reading all your books and everything. Uh, I, it's so nice of you to say. It was a delight. Can't encourage people to read your stuff enough. It's so, it's so powerful and helpful to me. So thank you for caring about investing in other comics and sharing your your journey along the way. It's It's super helpful and in all the way. So really appreciate that. Thanks for saying so, Drew. You're welcome. All right. Thank you everybody for joining. Uh, come, come get us next Friday with Mr. Rick Roberts. Same time, same place. Big guy. This is uh, uh, breaking down bits and we are out of here.
Thanks for listening to Breaking Down Bits. You can keep in touch or get more when you follow at Breaking Down Bits on social media. Visit the website breakingdownbits.com or shoot us an email at breakingdownbits at gmail.com.